0: You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the RoomNow faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay, reporting for RoomNow from ACR Convergence 2021, which was supposed to have been in San Francisco, but I think we've all stayed home. I've got Kevin Winthrop here, Uh, Kevin is in Portland, Oregon, and I haven't seen Kevin in person for about two years, uh, but here we are on Zoom. Uh, Kevin is the guru about infections and safety issues related to all of the drugs that we use. And today I'd like to talk to you, Kevin, about some abstracts that were presented, uh, three posters on which you were an author. Uh, One was uh, upatacitinib safety, another was Baricitinib, nine point three years. Uh, final word on safety, and there was another one uh, that was uh, filgotinib uh, safety, and then the oral surveillance study, uh, the study about which everyone's been talking, had a poster about infection risk, uh, and you know, you know herpes. So I think let's focus right now on herpes, uh, in the upadacitinib poster. The only thing that really stood out to me was the about 3.6 or 3.8 fold increased risk of herpes, uh, compared to adalimumab. Uh, and there was a similar increased risk of herpes with about the same hazard ratio in the oral surveillance study. Uh, what are your comments about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, um, just to, just to remind you that it's it's not herpes, right? It's a herpes virus, but it's varicella. Um, when we've looked actually at herpes simplex in some of these Jack studies and analyses before, we, we tend to see uh, elevated risk with herpes simplex as well, but it's not as well reported or recorded or talked about. Um, nobody likes to talk about herpes, John. <laughs> um, with reactivation varicella disease or herpes zoster, shingles, uh, you know, I, I think all three of these uh posters, and then there's some real-world data you mentioned, they they all speak to the same thing. I mean, we're all seeing kind of the same rates of shingles reported uh, long-term. You know, they're not getting higher or lower. They're staying, staying fairly stable within these JAK inhibitor developmental programs. And, um, you know, when there's a comparator, particularly another DMART or, or placebo, I mean, they're almost always, you know, two to three-fold higher. And we are seeing that in and all the, all the studies you just mentioned, um, including the oral surveillance data. So uh, it jives with what we've seen in the real-world data, uh, population-based data where it's been looked at, primarily with tofacitinib because that's where most of the population data is with, with JAK inhibitor, inhibitors. Uh, but again, we see this two-fold risk and it f- seems to be fairly steady. Um, and, and there was a
0: paper that was e-published back in July in rheumatic diseases that looked at about 14,000 patients from the rabbit registry. And they found a 3.6-fold increased risk of herpes zoster associated with targeted synthetic DMARDs compared to conventional synthetic DMARDs. So that's very similar to the uh, increased risk of zoster that we're seeing uh, in, those, uh, in the individual study oral surveillance or in the upadacitinib data that you presented
1: yeah it's all it's very consistent i mean the one thing i'd say is that the Philgo uh, abstract which was also reported i mean the the rates are a little bit lower in that uh compared to the other lte experiences reported upon in the real world data um but but again the program was you know the, this these data were collected in different people and different places at different times so it's hard to know how to compare and there's no, you know, there's no comparator in that LTE data. So, you know, whether Phil goes relative uh, risk is higher as compared to, you know, a TNF comparator or not, we will just have to see, but um, you know, suffice it to say, you know, I, I think there's, a huge unmet need still, obviously, in uh, shingles prevention, and you know, I and you and others are working on that. But but vaccination hopefully will be a, a key answer to that. And particularly as we're crawling out of this pandemic, we're on the backside. I like to say, um, you know, we can we can focus again on preventing other viral infections like shingles. So,
0: so what are your recommendations for vaccinating patients? Should we make sure that patients are vaccinated with? Uh, Shingrix, the recombinant zoster vaccine before we start them on a JAK inhibitor?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is some data that suggests that, that flare is more likely to occur when the, when Shingrix is used. You know, the, the Calabresi's group at Cleveland Clinic reported a nice um, paper last year published at ACR and then published showing increased flare, particularly people that had a higher disease activity at baseline at the time of vaccination. Um, I think certainly trying to vaccine before JAK inhibition is ideal, given that's where, you know, the elevated risk really uh, occurs. Uh, we should also mention prednisone. You know, obviously there's a dose dependent risk there. And the lower you can get that um, dose, the, the better off someone is. You know, we still don't know about the efficacy of that vaccine in, in these patients. Now, their label recently did change to... Um, Accommodate vaccination in any immunosuppressed groups down to the age of eighteen. So, so it is, um, you know, it is within the label. At some point, um, you know, payers will probably start paying for it in people who are under age fifty who are immunosuppressed. Um, but again, we still don't know the immunogenicity or ultimately the efficacy. It's probably diminished depending on what kind of uh, DMARD a patient is taking or perhaps what kind of underlying autoimmune disease they have. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if we see, you know, findings like uh, we do with COVID vaccination, for example, and that some some DMRs really uh, can mitigate the the vaccine induced uh, response. So we have a lot to still figure out. Uh, but but for now, I think you know in daily clinical practice, I'd say sure, I, w- I would try to vaccinate him before a jack and hammer.
0: So I write the prescription for the recombinant zoster vaccine, give it to my patient. Do I tell them to withhold methotrexate for two weeks after their vaccine? Uh, and also, That's a great should I- question.
1: We're we're hoping to address that in in two studies that we're doing or uh, trying to start anyway. Uh, one um, one would look directly at that in the context of jack inhibition and whether you know altering a jack or altering a methotrexate for a couple of weeks would would make a difference. I, I guess my, my gut sense would be sure. I mean, I think if anyone's in uh, remission or LDA, you know, trying to hold their, their DMARD and particularly certain types, you know, a methotrexate, a JAK inhibitor, probably a baticep, probably if you hold those things or skip a dose, you are going to assist the immune response, whether, whether it matters or not clinically, of course, we don't know. And, uh, you know, these are, these are great questions for study. I think, um, if you put me if, if I had a patient walk in the door on methotrexate and I was going to give it to him, I'd tell them, yeah, hold it for two weeks. But but I'd also tell them that the the data undermining or under underneath that recommendation is is quite thin and extrapolated from other experiences at this point. So
0: when I'm about to start someone on methotrexate, I get some baseline labs. I'll get uh, hepatitis B and C serologies. I'll get a quantifier TB gold test. Should I be vaccinating my patients with the recombinant herpes zoster vaccine when I start them on methotrexate uh, to m- get them immunized so that when their therapies advance to a biologic agent or target synthetic DMARD, they're already immunized?
1: You know, I think vaccinating any vaccine, if you can do it before you start the DMARD, uh, is is a good idea. And we always you know, say in the recommendations, try to vaccinate before. You start immunosuppressing someone just like you're trying to screen them for, you know, hepatitis B and you know hep C and uh, TB, et cetera. But, you know, but you have to balance that, John, with disease activity, right? And if you've got someone who's got real hot uh, autoimmune disease, that's not a great time to vaccinate them either. It, it may be better to vaccinate them once their disease is better under control because we know, you know, really active RA, for example. I mean, patients aren't going to respond to vaccination uh, as well. So so that's something you have to balance as you go um, and, I guess, kind of make a call initially. Um.
0: Well, that's really helpful. Well, uh, uh, we're keeping this to a relatively short time so that uh, we don't take our take up too much of our viewers' time. Uh, it's always a pleasure and a privilege to get advice from Kevin Winter about these and other issues related to infection and drug safety. Uh, I'm Jonathan Kaye, and For more on ACR Convergence 2021, go to roomnow.com. Thanks.
1: Thanks, guys. Have a good one.
0: Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay, reporting from ACR Convergence 2021, which was supposed to be in San Francisco, but we watched it from home. I'm here with Kevin Winthrop, who's a professor of infectious diseases and the guru on infections and rheumatology and our drugs. So, Kevin, the oral surveillance study presented data about infections at the ACR meeting. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, it was nice to see the update because, you know, prior to this, it really just been the interim data cut that had been in the public domain. And, uh, you know, what, what did we learn? Uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty consistent with what we've seen before in terms of the herpes zoster signal being there, you know, threefold higher risk for TOFI users as compared to uh, TNF users. But, you know, if you look at the serious infection data um, in general, and as well in those that are elderly, it's also similar to what we've seen in trials. You know, I mean, I've always thought that the, the risk of serious infection in general is, is largely the same between TNF blockers and um, JAK inhibitors. At least that's what we would garner from um, the clinical trial experiences. Of those drugs um, coming through, as, as well as the, the real world data that, that's out there. Um, if you look at oral surveillance, you look at that high risk group—you know, the people who have higher rates of serious infection, age 65 and above—you uh, you really didn't see a difference between the approved dose tofa five uh, bid versus the TNF blocker. It was about the same. Um, you know, when you looked at younger people, there was some suggestion that the risk was slightly higher with tofa, um, but it wasn't statistically significant. Um, TOFA 10 is a different story. You know, you see much higher risk levels for infection, both shingles and general serious infections uh, with TOFA 10. Um, and you see that as compared to TOFA 5 as versus uh, as well as versus TNF blockers. So that's something we've also known uh, from prior experiences. So, so, you know, the world surveillance data, um, you know, the, we want to talk about VTEs and all the other things uh, today. We don't have time, but from an infection standpoint, I think it uh, it looks pretty similar to what we've seen uh, before with TOFA, as well as the other JAK inhibitors.
0: So from the standpoint of infections, nothing really new. Uh, it's important to remember that the oral surveillance study was limited to individuals 50 years and older who had at least one cardiovascular risk factor. So it doesn't apply to the entire general population uh, yeah. Uh, I
1: mean, I, I, think if anything, you know, and I haven't seen the data modeled and we haven't looked at risk factors in that data yet, but uh, I mean, from the crude instance rates are reported, uh, it's somewhat reassuring that in older individuals, um, you know, if you're going to start them on TOFA five or start them on adalimumab, you, you can expect about the same risk of infection. So uh, I, I think if anything, it's, it's somewhat um, reassuring uh, you know, in terms of using jacks and older people from an infection standpoint.
0: Well, that's good to know. Well, Kevin, it's always a pleasure to get your insight on infections and lots of other topics as well. Uh, uh, I would direct people to our other interview on RoomNow.com and other videos about ACR Convergence 2021. Thanks for listening. I'm Jonathan Kay with Kevin Winthrop.
2: Thanks, guys. See you later. Cheers. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dr. Pedro Castillo in Dallas, Texas, with Room Now. We're covering ACR Convergence 2021. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the abstract 1946. For those of you following at home, this was presented by Dr. Silje Waterdal siversen This is a uh, this is going over the Norwegian Drug Monitoring Trial, or Nordrum B. This is a part of the trial that was looking at therapeutic drug monitoring versus standard therapy for patients receiving infliximab for a variety of inflammatory diseases. Now these inflammatory diseases spanned uh, several, including GI and arthritic types of uh, diseases and skin disease. So psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, axial axial spondyloarthritis, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. Now this was done over 21 different hospitals with 454 patients divided in half where half of the group would get uh, the therapeutic drug monitoring and the other half would be standard of care. Now therapeutic drug monitoring was basically trying to keep an infliximab level of between three to eight milligrams per liter. The standard therapy was to use basically clinical judgment based on clinical factors uh, of, of the physicians treating these patients to decide if they wanted to change the dose of infliximab. The idea here is to see if we can try to minimize the amount of patients who are getting an overdosed amount of medication and also ensure that patients are within the therapeutic range, as well as prevent people from, quote-unquote, failing the drug um, when, in fact, perhaps they were just outside of the therapeutic range. The primary endpoint here was for all diseases, all the diagnoses together, to maintain or sustain uh, sustained control of the patients. Now, these, of course, remember, are infliximab uh, treated patients who are on maintenance therapy. Now, in the therapeutic drug arm, they had 74% sustained control, whereas in the standard of care, it was 56%. And this was a significant difference when you're talking about the primary endpoint of meeting all the diagnoses together. When you're looking at the individual subgroups, AS, or uh, axial spondyloarthritis, as well as ulcerative colitis, were significantly different, with the rest of them also... Uh, being numerically different, in other words, uh, better than the standard of care for the uh, therapeutic drug monitoring arm. Um, But uh, those other ones were not significant in themselves. But again, remember that's a subgroup analysis, whereas the primary endpoint was meant for the whole group altogether. This is a a really cool study because it basically is potentially practice changing in the future. I mean, if we have a cheap and readily available way to check therapeutic levels of infliximab, on these patients, we may find that, um, hey, they, they have a too low of a level, and maybe we just need to increase the dose, or perhaps they have a very low level, and in fact, they're, uh, they have a high antibody to infliximab. in which case we need to switch therapy. Perhaps we find that some of them have a too high of a level, and we can decrease the frequency or decrease the dose. And so that, that can be important for a lot of reasons. The other thing that they did find in this study that was interesting was that the dose variation was actually lower or better. Uh, in the therapeutic drug monitoring group, in other words, they didn't vary the doses as much in the therapeutic drug monitoring group. I would have thought that it would have been the other way around, but in fact, uh, those who were just getting standard of care uh, are the ones who changed more often. And the other thing that was interesting was that patients who received standard of care therapy more often had levels that were below the goal. Now, this was an open-label study, which of course presents its own uh, various limitations, uh, but It's very encouraging to see that this may be an avenue for better targeted therapy for those patients. Thank you very much for joining me today. This is RoomNow. You can learn more at roomnow.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Castillo underscore Pedro. Thank you very much. Hi,
3: I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes, a rheumatologist from the Philippines reporting for RoomNow at the virtual ACR 2021. Lupus patients are at a higher risk of preeclampsia than the general population and clinical guidelines recommend aspirin as prophylaxis for the subset, especially among pregnant lupus. Educating patients about their disease raises awareness and enables them to become involved in the management of their condition. Abstract number 1711 by Esther Lee and her group aimed to evaluate an educational tool on preeclampsia knowledge among pregnant SLE patients in a randomized controlled trial called the preeclampsia knowledge and aspirin adherence in lupus pregnancies or PREPARE trial. They created an SLE-specific educational tool through modification of a previously validated preeclampsia educational tool developed by Dr. Whitney Yu and her team at Northwestern University and the Preeclampsia Foundation. Participants were randomly assigned to receive either the specifically designed educational tool plus standard of care or standard of care alone after completion of knowledge questionnaires on baseline first trimester visits then given the same questionnaires at each subsequent visit. Their interim analysis on 33 patients showed that the difference in mean preeclampsia knowledge scores between um, second trimester and baseline visits in the intervention group was 4.4 points versus 1.5 points in the control group. The mean difference in knowledge scores was 2.7 points higher and those who received the educational tool pointing toward a trend of improving preeclampsia knowledge among pregnant women with SLE who received the intervention. This is an ongoing trial, and it would be interesting to see the impact it will have on aspirin intake in pregnant lupus patients. Follow me on Twitter at RumaRampa and tune in to RoomNow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes, a rheumatologist from the Philippines, reporting for RoomNow at the Virtual ACR 2021. Evidence shows that patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and AXPA carry an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. This risk appears to be mediated by systemic inflammation over and above traditional risk factors. High-sensitive CRP is an independent surrogate marker of CV risk, and an elevated neutrophil-to-lymphocyte ratio is a novel biomarker of systemic inflammation that has emerged as a predictor of prognosis in cardiovascular disease. IL-17A is a pro-inflammatory cytokine and may represent one of the main links between cardiovascular disease, in psoriasis, PSA and axpa. The study by Dr. Ian McKinnis and colleagues with abstract number 1835 reported the effect of secukinumab in TV risk parameters and systemic inflammation among psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and AXPOP patients. This post-hoc analysis included 9,197 patients from 19 clinical trials. They found that both doses of secukinumab at 150 and 300 milligrams significantly reduced the median CRP and NLR at week 12 for psoriasis or week 16 for PSA and AXPA compared with placebo. Key traditional cardiometabolic parameters remain stable in secukinumab treated patients in one year. These findings suggest that the beneficial effects of secukinumab on systemic inflammation go beyond improvement of clinical symptoms, but also reduces cardiovascular risk in this set of patients. CV risk assessment must be evaluated regularly when managing patients with chronic inflammatory disease like psorias- psoriasis, PSA, and XPA because these additional risk factors would influence the choice of treatment and potentially optimized outcomes. Follow me on Twitter at Roomarampa and tune in to RoomNow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you.